And first, a quick word from our podcast sponsor. FactSet delivers superior data, analytics, and flexible technology to help more than 170,000 users see and seize opportunities sooner. For over 40 years, we have given investment professionals the edge to outperform with informed insights, workflow solutions across the portfolio lifecycle, and industry-leading support from dedicated specialists. Through market changes and technological progress, we're proud to have been recognized with multiple awards for our analytical and data-driven solutions, while staying connected to our clients and each other. Learn more at www.factset.com. Thanks for joining us on the sustainability story. Today, our guest is Mark Van Cleef, Managing Director of Future Zero. And if you've been in the corporate governance or ESG world for the past couple of decades, you know Mark. Uh, I'm going to let him uh, introduce himself a little bit, but uh, thanks for uh, thanks for joining us here today, Mark. Matt, it's uh, it's a pleasure to be with you here, and I hate to admit that I've been involved in the governance field for that long. <laughs> yeah, it's, I've been involved almost almost that long. No, I uh, know to, I, we've kind of almost known each other all that long. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Today we're going to talk about. Uh, we're recording this right before COP twenty six starts, and this will come. Uh, this will podcast will drop, as they say, right after COP starts. We wanted to kind of frame what people can expect, not to expect, what to look for from COP, and then get into a little more of the, the, the details of where you see climate going from your point of view after that. But first of all, give us a little background about where you're coming from and how you've kind of led up to this, to this moment in the ESG climate world. Right. And the challenge is taking 30 to 40 years in the governance field and putting it into 30 seconds. So I'll... Yeah. And, and, and as we were talking before, there's a Wayne Gretzky story in there that we probably won't be able to get to. Oh, yeah. Well, that Wayne and I go way back. <laughs> <laughs> well, just for, for some of your listeners who may not have been involved in the capital markets and corporate governance field as long as Matt and I have, I've been involved in the boardrooms and the C-suites around the world for about 30 years or more. Um, my background includes involvement in it, designing enterprise performance metrics and scorecards. And, and the story that I help put into context, I, I, I like to tell it too many times in the boardroom, I've had to advise the board of directors that we've interviewed all the members of management. We've interviewed all the members of the board. And without the CEO in the room, we have bad news because we're of the view that there's not a clear long-term strategy for the company. Right. And all of a sudden, you can hear a pin drop in the boardroom. And then all of a sudden, uh, the directors, a couple of times, I've literally got a round of applause. And at the end of the round of applause, I turned to the directors and said, does the round of applause mean you feel our critique that you don't have a clear strategy is valid? And some of the chairmen of the board have leaned in and said, it is. And you right. had a lot of courage coming in here to tell this board of directors that we didn't have a clear long-term strategy. And, and Matt, the reason that's important in, in some of the things I've been involved with in the last 30-odd years is because I've usually, and my team's usually been engaged in designing the performance metrics or the incentive design or the CEO succession planning processes and tools but without a clear long-term strategy, you can't do that work. 
So I've had to stop some boards pretty cl- – I've had to you know, kind of call them nicely onto the carpet to say, I don't think you have a clear long-term strategy. And I've been thrown out of a few boardrooms when I've said that. So, so, so that's, I can believe that. So, so, that, so that's, that, that's part of that. And we'll come back to why that's going to be important within the context of the great transformation that we're about to live through. Um, other piece of the puzzle, just for your listeners to help put it in perspective on being on the front line. I added it up the other day. I've negotiated over 450 employment agreements for some of the biggest companies in the world to recruit and retain their top officers. So I've been on the front line of literally recruiting and retaining and putting together the uh, the employment contract of what would take to you know employ these top named officers in some of the biggest companies in the world. So um, I got thirty years of doing this, and so from performance metrics to incentive design to org design to designing and negotiating employment agreements with some of the top officers in the world. Um, I've, I've been in the boardroom for some 30 years, and as I say to some folks, I've seen the good, I've seen the bad, and I've seen the ugly. Uh, and the unfortunate part is, is this is there's about 70, 80 percent. It's it's kind of the bad and ugly category. There's some good stuff out there. I don't want to mislead people. Uh, and then and the other key point I think that would be relevant for your listeners. I've spent 30 percent of my career in the last 35 to 40 years working with the asset owners. The asset managers. And I wrote the first CEO job description for something called the Ontario Teachers Pension Plan Board that folks may be familiar with. And I recruited its first founding chief executive officer. And I've been an advisor to major asset owners and asset managers around the world for the last 30 years. So that's that's kind of the institutional side of my life. And then and then the corporate side of my life, I put that hat on. Uh, the other 60, 70% of my career and my team's career, if you've heard of companies like Starbucks, A.C. Nielsen, Eli Lilly, Quaker Oats, Royal Bank, Barclays Bank, um, Anglo-American, Inco, Valet, Rockwell Automation, CPS Energy, Talisman Energy, the list goes on. I've been involved with all of those companies in the last 30 years in a broad range of organizational design, succession planning, long-term incentive plan design, top officer retainment. And then lastly, uh, 20 years on Madison Avenue. Uh, There's a well-known company called Omnicom, which is one of the largest marketing, marketing communications companies in the world. And I started my career in the advertising and branding and marketing industry. And so I was an advisor to Omnicom and their companies. Uh, doing recruitment and staffing and org design. Uh, and then the last piece of my puzzle is my banking career, uh, where I was on a couple-year retainer with a company called Citicorp that some of your folks may have heard of. And I was involved in setting up um, the corporate banking, the merchant banking, the M&A banking, the corporate credit, and finally the workout groups. And you haven't done banking till you've had to set up a workout group that has to come in and rec- rescue all the companies that have gone bankrupt. Um, so I've covered across a lot of uh, sectors from asset owners to asset managers, to banking, to consumer products. Uh, it's been a, uh, it's been a, it's been a, it's been a fun journey and, and that's kind of where, where I've come from. And then lastly, uh, I, I was for 10 years uh, in Canada, there's something called the Ivy business school. It's the Harvard equivalent. And I was the lead researcher and lead uh, guest corporate governance lecturer for 10 years, working with Larry Tapp, the then dean. And we would come up and spend time with the MBAs, talking to them, 
not about theory, because Larry was the first CEO of a company that became a dean of a business school. So Larry and I would literally be bringing to the classroom what we did in the boardroom in the last six months to 12 months, and we turn it into real life case studies. Um, so that's kind of the breadth of my background. And then I, I just finished chairing for the International Corporate Governance Network out of London. That's about seven, 50 trillion in assets under management. I just finished chairing their panel on performance metrics and incentive design. So I continue to straddle this world of asset owner, asset manager on that side and the corporates on the other side. So again, the good, the bad and the ugly, I've seen a lot. <laughs> No, that's a great. I wanted to kind of set that scene for for our listeners to show, you know, the breadth of your of, of your experience. And now, you know, something that always appealed to me about the the governance and the issue world is 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 it looked at the big picture of a lot of uh, behind the scenes of what's going on with companies, focusing on are they focusing on, you know, what's the story of the company, and that always gets to what's the strategy of the company, and that always gets to. You know, are they managing for this quarter or are they managing for the long term? And the ultimate long term issue is one, you know, that we're teeing up today and is is gonna be teed up, you know, over the next two weeks uh, in Glasgow, uh COP twenty six. So, you know, I, we were just talking before we got on about how we're in our feeds of the things we read and listen to, you know, we're inundated with COP twenty six now. But for those who are just coming to this new, what is COP twenty six and why is it important? Well, that's a great question. It's funny you asked that. My granddaughter asked me that the other day. And so I had to figure out how to explain to my granddaughter, what's this thing called COP26? Well, how, how, old, how old is your granddaughter? Um, well, I've got a couple of them, but one of my granddaughters who asked it, she's 29. Okay, and, well, and she's uh, it's different. It's a different. It's a, it's a it's a different story whether she's nine. Yeah, or 29. yeah. But well, but 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 uh, it is and it's not because if you're speaking with somebody that has no knowledge, mm-hmm. whether it's whether it's somebody nine years yeah. old or twenty nine years old, if if this is the first time they've heard of COP, uh, yeah. the answer's got to be the same. The answer's got to be the yeah. same. So I mean, for for the listeners out here, many of you, but maybe not all would know that the COP, it's called Council of the Parties, COP26 in Glasgow is the 26th annual meeting, annual summit of what's called the Council of the Parties. And they've been bringing together close to 200 countries from around the world for the last 26 years to attempt to address this issue around climate change. So the climate change agenda this isn't new. It's been around for some 26 years of the leaders of the world recognizing that this this may be a problem. And uh, I, I think what is, uh, after months of planning, at months of planning, what's going to start this week, next week, uh, is really around uh, accelerating um, what came out of the Paris Climate Agreement five years ago, which really was the culmination of some 25, 20 odd years before that. So it's uh, we, we've reached, I think, a pretty important uh, tipping point um, in, in this whole issue of, of climate. And then what should people be looking for and not looking for at COP? We hear a lot about, you know, all the nations, well, most, most of the nations in the world are going to be there represented in some way. You know, what gets negotiated, what doesn't? What, what should people be looking for and not looking for to come out of this? Well, so if I stand back just for a little bit in terms of why it's important, it's important with what comes out of COP 
Because for the first time, for the first time ever, Matt, we have all the countries, some 200 countries, agreeing that human activity is generating these greenhouse gas emissions. We never had that agreement before. And there were even countries like Russia and Saudi Arabia and Poland, they were never prepared to go on the record. These are countries that use a lot of fossil fuels and greenhouse gas to power their energy systems. So up until the last 24 months, this was like the first time that they were prepared to say, no, we, we are prepared to put a stake in the ground and admit that these greenhouse gas emissions are human activity generated, uh, not caused by solar flares or something like that, which some folks think it is. Uh, and and, and I, think, I think the interesting question about going into the next two weeks, the information I have, and it may not be right, is that um, Putin from Russia is not coming. Xi Jinping from China is not coming, and Modi from India, I still haven't heard yet. And the reason that's important is those are three of the biggest greenhouse gas emitting countries in the world. Now, is the fact that those three world leaders aren't coming good news or bad news? I don't know yet. Because one of my deep throats in the, in the Glasgow yesterday said to me, well, Mark, maybe, just maybe, it's already been pre-negotiated. And maybe they didn't need to come because there are a whole bunch of announcements that are going to be made in the next two weeks. Or maybe, or not. So we, we really won't know until we go through the next two weeks to find out kind of what's going on. Um, and if, if you kind of think about it, you know, we're really dealing with the climate ambitions. Uh, and, and the reason this is all important is, is that we have a set of climate ambitions that were set by these countries. And at the current time, Matt, and you know this better than most, the current time, the current commitments from the 200 countries around the world will not get us to what the climate science is asking us to do. The current, the current commitments are going to get us to three, three and a half or four degrees temperature rise, which have a significant problem for the planet. Uh, and so the, the commitments are not high enough. And that's part of what uh, we have to see it may come out of this new cop uh, in Glasgow uh, is, is uh, are they really serious? And what's that really going to look like? And then, then the la other last piece of this is, is around the issue of the companies. And I think it's MSCI's been, I'm not sure who is MSCI or someone else has been doing some fracking. And today, out of the largest listed publicly traded companies in the world, less than 10% of them less than 10% have actually committed themselves to a net zero business model, which means 90% of them haven't. And of the 10% that have, we're not even sure they know what a net zero business model is. Yeah, the details are sparse on a lot of those net zero, zero business models. They are. They are. So, uh, I, so I think that really picks up on your question, really, on... Um, I can come at it two ways. First of all, what not to look for coming out of COP. I don't think, and I've asked a couple of my colleagues who will physically be on the ground there next week, what their expectations are. And they've come out and said pretty clearly to me, Mark, if you think we're going to get a global agreement on a carbon fee or a carbon price, it's probably not going to happen. There's just too many players, including the United States, 
Uh, and I've spent half of my life in the United States and half my life living in Canada. Uh, I'm a North American uh, as a Canadian. Uh, and the chances of the United States coming up with an agreed price on carbon, I think is probably a pretty low probability. So I probably wouldn't be looking for that. But what, 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 what would success look like? And what should we be looking for, I think is the question. I'm, I'm looking for, and some of my board members that I counsel are looking for, do we come out with a set of ambitions from the 200 countries that are significantly raised, significantly raised, that are closer to a net zero emissions type of goal, that, that we have to watch for that very carefully. That's at a country level. I would also be looking at a city level because there are probably some 50 to 80 cities around the world who, including the megacities, I mean, there are huge megacities that have 10, 15, 20 million people in them. And if those cities are also making commitments to net zero emissions and a, and a clear timeline to get there, uh, including clear goals by 2030, including clear goals by 2025, if we see evidence of, of those types of ambitions and intents, uh, that will start to give the sense that the governments, in one way or another, um, are pretty serious. Um, so that, that's going to be you know, really one of the, the, the questions coming out of this. And, and, I, and I think the other question coming out of this is how do we assist, how does the developed world, the, the developed world assist the developing world? And to help put it into context, we ran the math on 16,000 of the largest publicly traded companies literally on the planet. And so we looked at North America and Europe and the country and companies that are publicly traded there. And we looked at the, 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 country, the, comp, the publicly listed companies in Asia. And to put it into context, the CO2 tons per million dollars of revenue, for every million dollars of revenue, how much carbon do they put in the air? The CO2 tons per million dollars of revenue in Asia is double that of North America. It's double that of Europe. But, but we shouldn't be surprised because if much of our manufacturing has been taking place in China and Vietnam and Korea and Taiwan, et cetera, that's, that's technically our scope three emissions. That, that's really where our scope three emissions are for North America. Our scope three emissions are for the United Kingdom and Europe, as an example, because much of what we're having manufactured and produced is being produced in, in Asia using power systems that are significantly uh, tons per CO2 uh, per million dollars of revenue over there are running five, 10, I fell off my chair, 15,000 tons of CO2E per every million dollars of revenue at certain companies that are in China. Those are huge numbers. Those are huge numbers. So the phasing out of coal is something to watch for. That's a, that, that's a key thing coming out of COP. Is, is there going to be an agreement to phase out of coal? Yeah, and just to, just to jump in on that, I was, I was uh, reading something this week about uh, and I forget where it was. Uh, I've been reading so much about this, but yeah, the way to, a way to think about it is: look, you know, especially India and China, 
in Asia. Oh, I'll, I'll talk a little bit. You have a, you can have a sip of water too. You've been talking for a long time. Uh, but you know, China, I think I, I heard, uh, I read that about, about 10 to 12% of their grid now is, is, you know, green, green sources, you know, in China. And that's only about two or 3% in India. And the lion's share is coal. And, and China made a commitment, I believe, uh, net zero by 2060. Uh, and I don't think, I haven't seen one from India yet. I may have missed it. I haven't seen one. Uh, but the way to think of it is, look, energy, energy production needs to, is, is political stability, no matter where you are, whether you're in a developed country or a non-developed country. Look at the, you know, the, um, uh, in, in North America now, you know, people are complaining about energy prices going up. Well, what if you didn't have that energy at all? You know, we kind of take that for granted. But, but you know, energy reliability is is in political. It goes along with political stability everywhere. But you know, when you have a third, you know, of the the planet's population in those two countries, uh, that's a huge factor uh, in that. And that transition needs to be, happen in a way for those you know, for those governments and, and all governments where there's not a hiccup where, you know, we don't have power, you know, and coal is that stable baseline of power. And that transition is going to take a while. And another part of that equation is, you know, what is the uh, hit to GDP or is there one from switching to clean energy? You know, pe people have jobs and and money is made off of these resources, well, it's whether it's oil or gas, and and is, is that this transition going to provide jobs that are comparable or better uh, for people you know who have those jobs and for investors? Is that resource going to be comparable or better? And so those are two factors that people really don't think about. It's just like, well, we need clean energy, full stop. It's like, well, but how do you get there? And that's a huge political question as well. Well, well, it is, and just but help put things into context again for all of our listeners. Uh, China uh, is actually leading the world, leading the world in nuclear. Uh, China, I happen to be uh, playing a role in helping bring public one of the leading small modular nuclear companies in the world, backed by the Department of Energy. And one of their leading potential markets is China. And I believe, I, without violating my non-disclosures agreement, I believe they may have some agreements in place with parts of China to put some small modular nuclear reactors uh, into China, and that China may probably lead the world. And so to, to China's, uh, it's, it's Tom Friedman's, from the New York Times, it's Tom Friedman's, if I could only be China for a day. Because the reason Friedman talks about that is because they get to make all the decisions top down, and it's not a democracy, unfortunately. Um, but if you could be China for a day, and you make the rule that, hey, folks, we're going clean, clean energy, and it's being dictated from the top, you can bet they're going to get there. So, and then they, and the only other last piece, because I've spent so much of my time in the power and the energy sector, um, just take a look at California. The lights have been going out, folks. Uh, I've spent 20 years in Texas. The lights went out last year. <laughs> My phone started ringing. <laughs> and, and, and it was like I got a phone call from San Antonio, Texas. And my colleagues, my board members in San Antonio said, Mark, it's like a war zone. They said, we have no power. 
We have no gas. We have no heating. We have no water. So for those of us in the developed world that take water, heat, and light for granted, um, this is part of the transition of getting to clean energy is critical because in the power sector, the thing that governs the power sector, Matt, as you mentioned earlier, it's all about power quality and power reliability and how are we going to get there. And just one, two last tidbits here. So the grid for North America is a North American grid. It's not a Canadian grid. It's not a U.S. grid. As I joke with my friends and colleagues, the electrons don't stop or start at the Canada-U.S. border. The electrons flow. There is, there is no customs to stop the electrons from flowing. And it's a North American north-south grid. And if we shut the lights off in, 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 in Ontario and Quebec, a lot of folks might be surprised to find out the lights are going to go out in Washington and in New York City. So we have to be thinking about a North American grid that gets to 100% clean energy. Hydro-Quebec today is 99% clean energy. Ontario Hydro today and, the, and OPG up here today is 98% clean energy. The U.S. grid is running 68% fossil. So we got to figure out how we take this whole North American electrical grid and get it to clean energy and uh, and each part of the country each part of the continent is going to be different because it's wind, solar, power, nuclear, geothermal. Uh, there's no single, there's no silver bullet. There's no silver bullet. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's an, I tell people it's an all of the, the answer is all of the above. Absolutely. You know, for, for this. Absolutely. Well, before I, before I rudely interrupted you, uh, anything else uh, on the, what does success look like before we get into failure? <laughs> um, let me take a look here. Some of my notes um, talked about clean power. I, th I think we're going to have to have a clear agreement on vehicles. So keep our eyes out. Do we have the much of the world agreeing that internal combustion engine vehicles will no longer be sold? And after what time period? Because that, that, that will be an indicator that that whole sector is serious. Uh, also keep an eye out on what I call the smart, clean, automated building sector. Because a lot of our heat loss is from buildings that aren't built properly. Need to be new windows, new building codes. Uh, and we're going to be putting in new heat pumps or geothermal. And so there's going to be a massive shift to smart buildings and a massive degree of retrofits. So all of a sudden, if we see some government policies, whether in Europe, United Kingdom, North America, Asia, all about they're putting money up for retrofits, like, like a tax credit, that they want the consumers to go do what? They want the consumers to make their house as energy efficient as possible. Because right now, most of the building codes, I can speak at least for North America, most of the building codes aren't fit for purpose. And so that would be, you know, I think a good indicator. I think we need to watch really carefully the institutional investors. And that's maybe a lot of the folks that might be listening today. Are they starting to realize that they're playing a critical role in driving this transformation? A critical role in impacting the capital flows that's going away from fossil, moving towards clean energy systems, uh, and the other critical role the institutional investors are going to have to play is around 
I guess what I call strategic engagement. And we'll talk about that a little bit uh, further on. And I think maybe in our discussion, but strategic engagement is different than traditional engagement. Uh, and so I won't say much more, more than that for now, except to say that the, it's not just about security selection. It's not just about portfolio management. There is an active role for the institutional investor community to play in what Bill Gates and Mark Carney and uh, uh, the climate envoy and Mike Bloomberg, who many of you would know, uh, who is another envoy for this uh, COP, the former mayor of, uh, of New York and Bloomberg and Company as the, as the founder. They're all talking about that this is the, one of the largest transformations in human history. We're reversing 150 years of economic development that's all been based on fossil fuel. And this isn't something you do in a year or two. Uh, and, and so while, while we continue to use the idea of it's a transition, that's true. But, but I, it's more than that. It's really a transformation. And I'll, at some point, we may end up talking about that. So, so I think, I th I think th those are some of the things we're looking for as indicators of success. And in terms of indicators of failure, I think most of what we've just talked about, if it's not there, I think it's an indicator of, 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 of it was not a successful COP. I would also suggest to you, if we don't hear clear timelines, clear timelines coming out, right from the corporates, institutional investors, et cetera, if people aren't talking about, yes, we can talk about 30 years out to 2050. It's easy to do that. But milestones along the way. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, so I, I think about being in the boardrooms that I'm in, if management comes in and makes a presentation on net zero, perfect, I'd love to hear about it. But if at the same time, they're not telling us about specific plans and how they're going to get there and that they're as part of a retooling of the business model and the business strategy, that as an outcome of that, that they'll have reduced the overall scope one, scope two, scope three emissions of the business model by at least 25% within the next five years, and, that, and they've got that on the plan, and that they're up for 60% reduction by 2030, and they got that in the plan. If I don't hear those types of markers, Matt, I'm going to look at the management team and say, are, are you guys really have a real plan here, or is it just an aspiration? And I, and I think what we're going to have to be careful of both the board members at the corporates and one level or two up at the asset owners and the asset managers. It's one of what my, one of my board members calls a head fake, a head fake in, for those of you in certain sports analogies and hockey and soccer and football, soccer too, even and around the world. Um, a head fake is when they, they kind of motion they're doing one direction and they're actually going another. So the saying what they're doing versus the actual doing what they're doing doesn't line up. And so board members, as well as institutional investors, are going to have to keep their antenna up for is, are, are they hearing a bona fide transition plan? And let me put it in a context. Are they hearing a bona fide transition plan that if some activist shareholders, like the ones that just replaced the directors on the Exxon board, if a group of activist shareholders took some directors to court, would the transition plan be held up in Delaware court, where a lot of U.S. companies are incorporated, 
Would it be held up in Delaware court and seen by the judiciary as being a bona fide plan? Or would the Delaware judiciary look at what was just presented to the court and say, folks, we're having trouble with this. This is a great aspiration, but there's nothing backing it up. There really is no plan here. So I think I think the Delaware court's going to be looking for the head fakes. The institutional investors are going to be looking for the head fakes. The board members are going to be have to looking for the head fakes. And quite candidly, the VP of sustainability, the CEO and the CFO are all going to have to be saying, no, we really are committed. Or are we just trying to tell a good story, but there's nothing behind it and it's just vaporware. So that's that's the challenge. And and I sat in on a, on a, on a, a podcast yesterday. I think it was MSCI, to give credit to MSCI, they did a really great podcast, or it was UNPRI. I've sat on so many in the last week, Matt, I can't keep them all straight, <laughs> as, as you have. Um, but the key point was that they were making, which I think was a valid one. Lots of companies are making intentional commitments to this thing called net zero. The question is, what's backing it up? Yeah. Yeah. I'm, the, the proof will be in the pudding. Proof will be in the pudding. Well, er, early on, we I teased uh, I teased uh, Wayne Gretzky for the audience. So I'll go back to Wayne Gretzky, the whole the old uh, uh, the old um, oh, what is it? What's the word I'm looking for? I want to say adage, but that's not. Right. It's a great. Well, the, up here in Canada, the, we, the, we, the, we call the, it a Gretzkyism up here in Canada. It's yeah. Skate, I skate to where the puck will be, said Wayne. Yeah, that's where that's where I was trying to get to. You know. <laughs> You know, some someone asked him about you know how he does what he does, and and that's what he said. You know, I I, I try to skate to where the puck is going to be, yep. and so where kind of you know where is this climate and net zero transition going? Where is that puck going to be? To torture that metaphor. Yeah, no, I think it's a great metaphor, and I like to tell it having worked with Wayne thirty years ago in my early advertising career when Wayne was pretty young, and so was I. And um, so, if we think about that idea. Where's the puck going? And I think there's a couple of things to, to think about here. So in one of those events I sat in on, I think it was the UNPRI event I sat in on the last couple of days. Uh, no, 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 I pardon me. It was the TCFD event that I sat in on the last couple of days. They, they, they're all blurring. I apologize for that. But the TCFD event that I sat on, talking about the latest TCFD, that's the Task Force for Climate Financial Disclosure. I, I shouldn't use acronyms. I apologize. Uh, for those of you that TCFD is the, is the task force, uh, TCFD from uh, disclosures that Mark Carney and Mike Bloomberg has led over the last few years. And one of the things it was asking for was a scenario, a scenario. And on that podcast in the last two days, they talked about that the least area that was being complied with, if I can use that term, was this idea of a scenario or a stress test. And that less than 13% of companies had actually disclosed that they'd actually done some type of a stress test. Well, um, we actually have done a stress test. Uh, uh, we've actually done a stress test with ourselves. We've done a stress test with our colleagues at Credit Suisse, Credit Suisse Hold. And we've run it on uh, literally up to 16,000 of the largest publicly traded companies in the world, Matt, for which there's carbon information of some sort. And when we, when we ran it at a stress test of $100 US CO2E per ton, 
So that's if we had a carbon price. If we had, that's right, hundred dollars. Exactly. So if we had, if we had a, if we had a scenario carbon price right. of a hundred dollars a ton, and based on the current disclosures, the current disclosures of the sixteen thousand plus largest securities in the world, scope one, scope two, not scope three, just so we're clear. But based on scope one, scope two. Current emissions, current emissions, and the current performance of those 16,000 companies, the, per, the preliminary analytics that we ran, and then we're doing a quality control check with our colleagues at Credit Suisse Holt, because they've got their kind of a parallel database, and they're, they're using something called CF, CF, CFROI and carbon-adjusted CFROI, and we're using something called carbon-adjusted return on capital, and it's very similar. And as we ran our stress test and they ran their stress test, and we're still doing some quality control on it. So I just want to put a caveat around that quality control. But directionally, directionally, 16,000 securities uh, came back and told us, I can't remember the exact number of how many securities, but at, um, I think it worked out to 7,000 securities of the 16, 17,000 had a greater than 5% decline in their return on capital. And if we added up what's the enterprise value of those seven odd thousand securities, it's about 43 trillion of enterprise value at risk in the capital markets. So this is real money. Uh, you know, Mike Bloomberg and Mark Carney and others, you know, they, they know conceptually that this could be risk. But we've just ran and did the stress test on these 16,000 securities, as you mentioned, at $100 a ton, stress test, CO2E, scope one, scope two. And it worked out as a first run through with some you know, quality control checks that have to be still done. But directionally, directionally, we're in the neighborhood of in the 40s, the 40 trillions of enterprise value at risk. That, that, that's real money. Yeah, yeah. And that and, you, and that five percent number you mentioned, you know, that gets to us uh, kind of transition to what we're going to talk about next is that's material. That means something is material, and it needs to be disclosed. And we're and I want to talk a little bit about the mispricing of climate risk that that gets to. You know, there's not disclosure around it, and it's not priced correctly. And then after that, get into something you alluded to, you know, just a couple minutes ago. The law. What does that mean for the Delaware courts and for boards uh, and so on? So I'll I'll let you run with that. Sure. Well, so no, so you you brought up the issue of the mispricing. So uh, as we were running the the math on these sixteen thousand securities, um, we did a couple of things. We put them in a just a simple two by two matrix. And we were running um, five-year total shareholder return on the vertical axis. And we were running five-year economic profit on the, the horizontal axis. And, and we were looking at uh, the, the stress test that we were, we were talking about. And, and the, the results is, is that there's actually a lot of companies that are in that bottom left-hand quadrant uh, that they currently have a return on capital less than their cost of capital. But for some reason, the capital markets aren't pricing that in. 
And so then we take a look at it and go, well, hold on. So in energy? Well, no, in energy, we see it. But when we go to the utility sector, we go to um, the industrial sector, we go to the minings and metal sector, uh, the list goes on. We see the number of companies pre-carbon, pre-carbon, they ha- they're, in the, they're in the left-hand bottom quadrant of, in essence, having a failing business model, but the capital markets aren't pricing in the risk. They are in energy. Let's be clear. They are in energy. So we looked at that and said, what's going on? And why is that? And the answer we were getting back from some of our portfolio manager contacts and from some of our ESG and responsible investor contacts and our corporate governance contacts, the answer we were generally getting back is, well, Mark, it's not a real number yet. There is no, the, so even what we know that there might be a cost of carbon that could become real, currently the accountants, the accountants don't record it on the income statement of the balance sheet. So it's not real yet. Uh, and so from a pure gap accounting point of view, it can't be recorded. From a valuation point of view, it could be or might be, I think it is in the energy sector and the coal sector. But outside of energy, you know, oil and gas and coal, we've got a whole bunch of companies that their business model is broken. And when you take a look at the fact they're in high carbon business sectors and they had a, a 20, 30, 40, 50, 100% shareholder return in the last five years? And you go, how is that? Well, it's because they're not taking into account the cost and the risk of what I'm calling a carbon shock. Because I think it's going to be a carbon shock when a lot of companies all of a sudden face the fact that they might have a real $100 a ton cost of carbon. And and to help put that in perspective for, for all of our listeners, like Canada, as an example, we are now legally going to $170 a ton, legally. 170 170 a ton. Okay. As of, as of when? 2030. 2030. Okay. Okay. I guess. So, so, it's, so it's, it's, you did the exact same thing that the folks at Credit Suisse Holt did. <laughs> I was like, wait, not, not tomorrow. Or to- yeah. So the, the, the folks at Credit Suisse Holt, we were, we were checking our numbers, doing some quality control checks. I ran our numbers and they did their numbers and we were kind of saying, well, did you guys come out pretty close like that we did? And I said, well, um, what about if we want to run $150 a ton? They said, well, we're not set up to do that yet. Why would you need that? I said, gentlemen, ladies, Canada is already legally committed to go to $170 a ton by 2030. Now, are there there stepping stones along the way? Like, is there a 2025 price that they're going to factor that's a great question i can't remember if there is all i know is that there is a committed 170 dollars number that's legally in law i don't know the details of in essence the pathway to get there i just know that if any director in canada who isn't asking for a stress test somewhere in the 100 to 150 dollar a ton range yeah. I would suggest they're not doing their job as a director because it's gonna it's gonna get real here pretty quick, folks. Yeah, and I would imagine you know you 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 already have in the EU prices that are in the, that are in the high double digits, and they will they will be on a similar trajectory, I would imagine. Uh, and then Canada uh, or America's hat, as some people like to like to call it, uh, having um, you know with those two markets having 
substantial carbon prices and think of all the think of you know your S&P 500 all those companies are not all of them but most of them are global companies and they're going to have to figure in a carbon price for from Canada to New Zealand to either European Union uh, and China has its own market as well and so that's it's not like US companies are going to be able to oh. ignore that well and so the other thing that we didn't bring up that I should have that you just twigged is coming out of COP, there may be an agreement on something called a cross-border carbon adjustment. Right. And if we end up with a an illegal agreement on a cross-border carbon adjustment, then Matt, to the great point you've just made, whether we get an agreement of any type of internal agreement in the United States on carbon price, whether cap and trade or carbon fee, it doesn't matter. Canada is going to use a carbon fee, not cap and trade. Right. Right. Uh, but because of this cross-border adjustment, the movement of goods in one way or another will be, in essence, normalized. Right. There'll be a tariff if you don't have a carbon exactly. tax. Or, or a carbon a carbon market of some kind in your market. There'll be a tariff well, that, that, that adjusts for that. You're absolutely correct. And go a step further. The step further is now the International Maritime Organization, the IMO, and all the biggest shipping companies in the world, Maersk and the China Shipping Line, et cetera, they're all now making some comment that if they're moving goods out of a country that's coming out of a country where there's not a, in essence, appropriate carbon cost, they may levy one. Uh, as a as a almost a value added tax, yeah, yeah, just yeah. to get it on their ship, to get it to the United States or to get it to Canada or get it to Europe. So, the bottom line is, we're not, you're not going to be able to hide from this, yeah. even if the point you raised. If you're a U.S. company, it doesn't matter because if you're or or a Russian company or a Japanese company or whatever, exactly, you're not going to be able to hide it. Exactly. Yeah. So there's, so two, yeah. two, two critical points for the institutional shareholders, as well as for the corporates, a, there's nowhere to hide and B, you can't de-risk it out of your portfolio by selling everything. We're yeah. going to have to deal with your role in the transition. Well, I want to, I want to get to the, one of the really meaty things we talked about in kind of our, our discussions this week leading up to today is just how this is going to play out in the law and the courts and in Delaware, that means in the US. What are you hearing and, and what do you see happening? Where, where is that puck going? Oh, that puck. <laughs> That's, that one's going to be really interesting. So I, I think about it within the context of where we are today. And where the puck's going in the next, let's say, five years. So to help put it in a context for all of our listeners, and usually when I, I quote these statistics, I shock everybody, but it's, it's worth doing because it's still pretty current. Um, when I chaired the panel in June for the International Corporate Governance Network on metrics and incentives and sustainable finance, we highlighted for everybody uh, that um, the folks at ISS were quite helpful and they've got their big database. And I asked for a custom run from them, and they did it for our, pre, our, 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 our session, our event. And what did they find? Well, to make a long story short, ladies and gentlemen, we basically discovered that for all the listed companies in the world in the ISS database, Institutional Shareholder Services database, approximately, and I'm going off the top of my head here, 
approximately 90% of the companies in the world, listed companies, have no metrics and no incentive design linked to the customer. They have no metrics and no incentive design linked to diversity and inclusion in the, in, in the incentive plan for the named officers. They have no metrics and incentive design linked to innovation in the long-term incentive plan. And they have no metrics and targets in the long-term incentive plan linked to the environment or greenhouse gas reduction. So all of these intangible things that, that I think increasingly that as, as ESG or EESG, uh, EESG is the term that Leo Strine, the former Delaware chief justice uses. And I think Leo Strine is right. We, we need to stop thinking about ES or ESG as a silo, but it's EESG, economic, social, environment, governance, all as a balanced and integrated way to see if the company is creating value. And I think as we think about Delaware and the other piece of the puzzle, just before I jump further into Delaware, Canada Pension Plan Investment Board and McKinsey did a research study in the last five years. And what did they discover? They discovered that some 90% of the companies they surveyed, the farthest out they were planning into the future, the furthest out for 90% was five years or less. Five years or less, Matt. So hold on. We got we got five years or less. Oh, and, and we have something called the long-term incentive plan. This is an oxymoron, ladies and gentlemen. Long-term incentive plan when the longest performance period is three years or less. So that's I in the in the world that I travel, three years or less is not a long-term incentive plan. And, and so now within the world of Delaware. I think it's going to get really interesting because now we're sitting where companies might be committing to net zero. They might be committing to net zero by 2040 or 2050 for the business model. That's great. The problem is, is if there's no plan to back it up, that's a problem. That's a legal problem. It's a legal problem. It's a it, Technically, I'm not a lawyer but it's a fiduciary duty problem under Delaware law. Right. And, and there are three big buckets for those lay people like you and me. Um, there's something called the duty of loyalty. There's something called the duty of care. And there's something called the duty of disclosure. So under duty of loyalty, if there's not a monitoring system back to the board on what your greenhouse gases are, Scope one, scope two, scope three. And there's not a, a bona fide measurement system to validate that management's done a good job of measuring that. If there's not a, a system at all to measure that whole thing completely and report it to the board of directors, activist shareholders could challenge on that and say that the board has failed. The board has failed. So, so that that that's under this broad thing of duty of 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 loyalty. Under duty of care, 
activist shareholders could challenge and say, well, hold on, you're telling me you don't have a strategic plan that goes out 20 years? No. You're telling us you don't have a R&D and CapEx plan that goes out 20 years? No. So uh, you don't have a strategic plan out there for you. You don't have an R&D plan, no. You don't have a uh, CapEx plan, no. You don't have a CEO or C-suite succession plan that goes out 20 years. Because we're going to require three, four generations of executives to maybe get the business model to net zero. And all of a sudden, if the directors are, they're missing on all of these, Matt, there's no processes for any of this. There's no time horizons beyond five years. Oh, but here's the real kicker. This is what I'm guiding my directors on right now. Let me get this clear, folks. You know, the valuation of your company today is a 20, 25, 30 times forward price earnings ratio. So the capital markets are valuing your company at 30 times or 25 or even 20 times forward earnings, yes. And you're telling us you have no plan to get there. Ooh. Have you told your shareholders that? Well, and that gets me back to that that 43 number, <laughs> 43 tri yeah. trillion number. Yeah. You know, to, for listeners to think back to that, okay, we're, this is something we're not accounting for. Yes. Uh, and when we do... Surprise! There's a forty-three trillion dollar hole in global companies. Yep, yep. That's that is a interest, as you said, an interesting thing to look at. Well, and and we're 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 um, one of my board members. I think is having a lot of fun. Uh, he's the former vice chairman of Deloitte's, uh, and he's the former chair of the Canadian Accounting Standards Board. He happens to know something about accounting standards and valuation. And in a couple of his boardrooms where he's a board member, he's asked this question about, well, hold on. Um, you have a price earnings ratio, a valuation measure that's 20 and 30 times the value of today's one-year earnings. Where's the plan to get there? And management goes, we don't have a plan to get there. And all of a sudden, all the directors look around in the table at each other going, oh, that's a problem, isn't it? <laughs> And so, so the, the, this is where I think, Matt, and I love your chuckle there. Uh, this is where I think this thing called net zero, a lot of the directors around the world, it's not just US or Canada, not just Delaware. I think a lot of the directors are going to be in a, for a rude awakening, just like some of the boardrooms I've walked into where I, in a nice way, had to say to the directors, ladies and gentlemen, am I missing something here? Because we interviewed all the members of management. We interviewed all the members of the board. Your CEO's not here with us now. This is an in-camera session. We're of the view you don't have an, a board-approved long-term strategy for this company. And I think we're going to have a lot of those yeah. within the context yeah. of you. Well, and, then, and so then there's the last piece of the puzzle, man. Remember I, remember I said duty of loyalty, duty of care, duty of disclosure? So if you've disclosed that you have an ambition to get to, to net zero 2040, 2050, and you don't really have a plan. So under Delaware law is an example, which makes Delaware unique. There's something called a statute 220. The statute 220 permits the shareholders to do what's called the books and records request. 
Oops. So the board minutes, the board minutes, ladies and gentlemen, of the officers and the directors, the board minutes of the board are now subject to a full review by the shareholders. Oh, and it goes one step further. The email communications between the officers and the directors is now up for grabs. So an activist shareholder could come in and say, oh, well, they've, they've claimed they're going for net zero, but we've just done a statute 220 books and records request, including all board minutes, all board books. Even we've requested and the court granted it, the email trails between the CEO, the CFO, the audit committee, the sustainability committee, and there's no evidence of a real plan to get to net zero. Ladies and gentlemen, we now have a violation of the duty of disclosure. And so that I, on all three of these fronts, Matt, the good boards, they'll button it down. The good boards will make sure that their board minutes are appropriately documented. And the boards that aren't doing their job and the corporate councils and the corporate secretaries that aren't doing their job, um, uh, as Chris Ailman, the chief investment officer of Kelsters, known to many of you, maybe, as Chris Elman said on a recent event that I was part of on the Net Zero Business Model Conference two weeks ago, hosted by Sustainalytics and Credit Suisse and, and, and others, Chris Elman got up and was asked the question about the fact that this Exxon board thing where the board members got removed, was that a, is this going to be a one-off? And I think Chris was adamantly and pretty clear that don't interpret this as a one-off. We're going to see more and more directors being challenged by their shareholders in terms of keeping your board seat. And I think we're going to see more and more potential situations where the activist shareholders are literally going to challenge the directors in a, a, a jurisdiction like Delaware Court. And I think we're going to be surprised to find out how many directors are going to be standing. As Warren Buffett used to say, when the tide goes out, how many are standing naked? And I think yeah. we're going to see a few directors standing naked when the net zero tide goes out. Well, that makes that that gets me to the the next thing we're thinking of talking about, and and I know we've we've been talking a long time. I could talk I could talk for another hour on this, but I want to respect the. I hope people have uh, hour commutes that they can listen to to this. Sure. Hour. You know, hit pause, hit pause, and then come back. This is a great discussion. But we talked we talked earlier about you know the transition. You know, there's the physical risks of climate change, and then there's the transition risk of climate yep. change, and. This transition, if you've been listening to us, to Mark and I talk for the past you know, 40 minutes, 45 minutes or so, you can come to the conclusion, I think reasonably so, that this, this transition is going to be messy and it's going to go in fits and starts and there's going to be disruptions in power, uh, political disruptions, legal disruptions for boards we just talked about. Uh, this is going to be a, a messy transition. I think so over decades. So there will be smooth patches in there, but I think investors need to appreciate that that's, that's, I, I think that's going to be the case. I don't, I don't think that's much arguable. Uh, anything to add to that? No. Um, well, only that um, I think it's going to be disorderly, not smooth. And uh, we have a term in the U S military called VUCA. I happen to have close ties to the U.S. military. And VUCA stands for volatile, 
uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. Mm-hmm. And I think we're moving into a VUCA world. Yeah, that's that is a that is a great way to put it. And as we move into a net zero world that becomes a VUCA world, we're going to need board members and C-suite members and, and asset owners and asset managers that are comfortable dealing with leadership in a VUCA world. That, that, is, that is a smooth transition. And so the last thing I want to talk about is you, and you mentioned it before around, you know, one of the most important thing, things for investors uh, and most, I would imagine, you know, outside my family who feels obligated to listen to this podcast, <laughs> most of the people listening are investors. Mm-hmm. And the role, you know, the heavy lifting on a lot of climate is going to be done by policy and regulation. Yep. But investors have a, a role to play. And a lot of that you mentioned before is around engagement. Mm-hmm. So things like, you know, Climate Action 100, uh, is engaging. Uh, they're using things like the TCFD model. Uh, you know, what are the, some of the challenges in that engagement world and what would you like to see and what, what do you see coming down the pike? Yeah. So that's the next, where's the puck going? So, um, couple comments. So the climate action, well, so let's start with the TCFD. I think the TCFD has set a good foundation and a good framework. I, played a small role in in some of its evolution in the last three to four years and literally personally flew to London and had some meetings at the Bank of England with some of the drafting team of the TCFD and some some institutional investors in London came with me and we were part of those discussions at the Bank of England. And it was actually kind of funny because some of the folks in London said, how did you get a meeting at the Bank of England? I said, it's called the Canadian Connection. They said, oh, the Canadian, I see the Canadian Connection works. Ah, got it. So the TCFD is actually sets a very, very good framework. It sets the framework around governance and strategy and uh, and risk and, and metrics and targets. I, and I think that's a very, very valid framework. We're, I think we're going to have to evolve to with that and the Climate Action 100 and the Transition Pathways Initiative. They're, they're all doing great work. They're all helpful. But I guess the way I'd frame this up, Matt, is I draw a simple two by two matrix. And on the vertical axis, we'll put the success of the company. So the top box is commercial success. The bottom, bo- the bottom axis is commercial failure. And across the horizontal axis of the two by two, the, the far right we'll say is net zero emissions. And the bottom left is lots of carbon. So the upper right-hand box of this simple two by two matrix is going to be a business model that's a commercial success measured by things like positive return on capital or positive carbon adjusted return on capital and net zero emissions. That's where, where you want to be. That's the winners. That's the winners. The bottom left-hand quadrant is going to be the casualties. Those the casualties are going to be the ones that have a return on capital below their cost of capital in their economics. The business model is not working economically. And that will show up in valuation at some point in time. It's shown up quite candidly in the coal sector and the energy sector. It's there today. The capital markets are pricing effectively for that, for those sectors. But as we mentioned before, it's catching up to the others. It is, but not not fast enough. And this is where I think the directors, the officers, the institutional investors are going to get carbon shocked. 
because right now it's not there. And so if we even look at the Climate Action 100, the Transition Pathways Initiative, et cetera, they're great initiatives. But let's be, let's be really, let's be exceedingly clear. In that four by four matrix of commercial and economic success on the vertical and carbon on the horizontal, the transition pathways, the Climate Action 100, the scientific-based targets and all that time, even the TCFD itself is guiding people on one axis only. It's the carbon axis. And I would suggest to you that if you want to come into my boardrooms and have a conversation about board transfer, about business model transformation to net zero, if you only come in talking about carbon, in many of the C-suites in the boardrooms I operate in around the world, you'll probably lose some of my directors. And B, they'll say, well, just give it to the senior vice president of health, environment, and safety on the, on, on the C-suite. Versus if you come in and say, this is about a business strategy, business model risk issue, and it's about the fact that your return on capital is less than your cost of capital, folks, over the last five, six to eight years, your pre-carbon, the business strategy doesn't work. It's in the economics. So the difference here is thinking about value creation, if that makes any sense which brings together the vertical axis of success commercially and economically with the horizontal axis of carbon is not an either or it's the end and, and I, what I'm suggesting is, is that in the, the new engagement model has to move beyond what some of my colleagues in London call tea and biscuits engagement. They say that with a very lovely English accent that I can't do very well. <laughs> so they, they're being very cordial and we're having tea and biscuits as part of the engagement conversation. Right. But in a tea and, then, tea and biscuits engagement, you don't have a big conversation about strategy. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and so I, I think about this to put it in, in, into kind of analytical or consultant context. I think there's three levels of engagement we'll be looking for as part of net zero. There'll be those doing tea and biscuits engagement. There'll be those doing level two, which I'll call strategic engagement. And that's where you're having a pretty difficult or challenging or respectful decision about the business strategy, the business model. Where is the company in its life cycle of innovation and returns on capital, pre-carbon and post-carbon? Do you even have that conversation? Do the directors even know? Oh, and yeah. then we go to level three. What's level three? Well, for those of you with investment background, level three, that's beta. Beta versus alpha. We're yeah. talking about the whole industry. And so I think that's a critical point, Matt. I'm back to the, the math we were running on. So we have a set of analytics, which is called CAPS. That's carbon adjusted performance spread. So the carbon adjusted performance spread, that's after cost of capital, after cost of carbon, those are two critical, pretty critical measures. When we ran the CAPS measure at $100 a ton on the 16,000 global securities at the median, halfway, the median, every sector for the world is underwater. Every, let me repeat that. Every sector 
every sector for the world at a carbon-adjusted performance spread after cost of capital, after cost of carbon at $100 a ton is negative and underwater. That tells me this is no transition. Every sector, not just energy, not just utilities, not just mining and metals, every sector's got high carbon business models. And when every sector's got a caps after cost of capital, after cost of carbon at the median that's negative, this is a global transformation. Well, that's a wonderfully uh, happy note to end on, I think. Hey, listen, you heard, heard it here first and we're running the numbers because the, 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 nope. you have to have the narrative and you have to have the numbers. And so the story goes together. And so this issue of transition, I, I, and I think you, 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 you raise an excellent point. We need to be careful with our language. This idea of a transition gives a sense that it's going to be orderly, smooth, mm-hmm. cordial. I think it's going to be far from that because this is not a transition. This is a transformation. It's going to be bumpy. It's going to be ugly. And as we said on our event, the net zero business model event that we had two weeks ago with Sustainalytics and Credit Suisse and Credit Suisse Holt and and Morningstar, uh, we were pretty clear to the folks, to the ladies and gentlemen that attended that event with some 2,000 people from around the world at 78 countries that joined on. Uh, that that this really is a true transformation and it's going to be a challenge to get there and it's going to be probably pretty disruptive. And uh, so as we kind of say, buckle up folks, uh, because uh, it's going to be a challenge and uh, COP's important. You know, that's, that's how we started. But ultimately, ultimately the consumer and ultimately the capital markets are, I think are going to determine how bumpy it's going to be, but right now we're planning for a pretty bumpy, uh, and there will be there will be winners who find competitive advantage, come up with brand new products and new services. Heck, look at look at Tesla. Tesla just hit a trillion dollars in market cap. They're they're a winner, so you're going to have winners, you're going to have casualties, and you're going to have survivors. So the question is, is were you a a casualty, a survivor, a bystander, or a winner? What was your role in the greatest transformation in human history? Uh, History will be told. I think that's a great great stopping point for those those who have stuck with us. But before we let you go, uh, before we let our listeners go, I try to to give everyone a little bit of homework at the the end of these sessions. Uh, So if you could share with uh, folks out there who want to know more about from, from Comp to Carbon, uh, to the capital markets in ESG, what are some things you're reading, or or you think they should be reading, or listening to? No, that's that's a, that's a that's a great question. Well, see, on my reading list, I got Bart Madden Bart Madden's book, uh, Value Creation Principles. Uh, what's really nice about Bart's book is he talks about the whole life cycle of innovation. And the life cycle of innovation relative to returns on capital and cost of capital. If you haven't read Bart's book, I think it's got to be on your bookshelf and you've got to read it. And and if you're an investor, if you're a C-suite member, if you're a board member, I think it's fundamental to understanding capital and capital management. Mark Carney's new book, Values, I think it's another great read uh, because he talks about values and he talks about value. Uh, and, and I, and, and I, it just, uh, he hits on so many key points about the transition that we're, we're living through. 
One I'm just reading right now is Marco Alvera. He's the chief executive officer of SNAM. And most of you would probably be familiar with SNAM. It's one of the biggest gas line utilities in Europe. And his book is called The Hydrogen Revolution. And it's all about the role that hydrogen is going to play in this energy transition. And he's on my hit list to have come speak at the Net Zero Business Model Conference in October 2022, because I think he's got the real insight on the economy of the world and the role that hydrogen is going to play. And then for those of you, again, who are in the investment field, and I, and if you've, if you've listened, listened to some of Matt's prior podcasts, and if you haven't read John Lukumnik's book, Beyond Modern Portfolio Theory, uh, I think it's another great read. And why? Because both he and Steve Leidenberg in Leidenberg's new book are both talking about what they call beta activism. And this thing called beta activism is that X percentage of your returns are actually being determined by the industry, not by the system, not, yeah. not by the individual alpha in the in the individual security. And and yeah. I think uh, so. I, I mean, I put that back to you. Maybe for your listeners, you may want to just uh, direct folks back to John's work because I I think that's part of the new world we're living through with the beyond modern portfolio theory and the beta activism. But that's my scope. That's my level three my level three uh, engagement that people aren't thinking about yet, I think is to come. Yeah. And uh, I'm glad you mentioned Steve Leinberg and Bill Burkhart's book, 21st Century Investing. We're going to have Bill on the on the podcast in a couple of weeks. Perfect. So yeah, we're, we're, we're ahead of you. Well, Mark, uh, this has been a great conversation. I know this is probably our longest podcast yet, but I don't, I don't mind. I love listening. I love having these conversations. Hey, listen, I, and I, I'm, I'm pleased to be here. And uh, also for your listeners, we're in the midst of, so we just had the Net Zero Business Model Conference two weeks ago. To yeah. our surprise, 2,000 people, 78 countries, $50 trillion in assets under management signed up. And so we're in the midst of, uh, of doing a, 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 a Glasgow, post-Glasgow event. And, and Matt, I think CFA is going to be involved in that potentially. Yeah, it's a, it's going to be in January now, right? It's going to be in January, so we're going to have right. that event in January. Then the CFA Institute is going to be involved with that, and then a year out from now, October two thousand twenty-two, we're getting what we call the Net Zero Business Model Band back together again, and uh, post Glasgow, and our intent is to have some of the leading chief executive officers and their executive teams, and the leading chief investment officers, and their teams come describe to the world what they're doing to help transition the world to a net zero economy. And so literally, we're hoping to have the CEO of BMW Group, Marco Alvara from, uh, as I said, just SNAM. Uh, I'm potentially reaching out to Mark Kudafani, the CEO of Anglo-American, the big mining company. So we're literally going to have the leaders of the world who are driving these industry transformations come speak at, at that event in a year from now to help people understand what they're doing to actually drive this transformation, that it it's going to be real. It's going to be fun for those who are at the leading edge, the winners, the winners. That's great. Well, we'll, well our listeners can put those things on their calendar. And great to be here. At, as always, it's a great talking to you, Mark. Uh, hopefully in the next year, we'll, we'll see each other in person at a conferences again. That, that'll be the fun part of this. This COVID thing has so totally disrupted everything. And, and, um, but you're right. Uh, I look forward to uh, uh, at a uh, 
uh, uh, event of some sort with a governance and capital markets link, uh, us getting back together again as we have in the years past. I look forward to it. Thanks again, Mark. Take care. Thank you.